Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us again. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker's here, of course, and it is the Impact of Influence. You can find us on Facebook, Impact of Influence. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be talking with Michael DeWitt about the Lifetime movie about the Murdochs. Got that going on. Uh, More updates on Murdoch stuff uh, after Michael DeWitt. But we're going to start with something that is relatively breaking. Just today, the South Carolina Court of Appeals has issued an order staying the appeal of the Murdoch conviction of Alec Murdoch. They're basically saying, we are going to deal with these jury tampering allegations before we deal with any sort of appeal. So the appeal thing put on hold, any kind of appeal they had about the actual trial, not including the jury stuff, that is frozen so everybody can focus on the jury tampering. Yeah, and I I think this is just logistically makes sense that they need to deal with that issue before they deal with an issue of a possible appeal. It's been painted as a victory for the defense, but the word we get is pretty much a nothing burger. It is what it was expected, and it's not really a, a huge surprise. No. We also want to talk about, before we get into the Lifetime movie, the fact that portions of the Murdoch family hunting farm is up for sale. The home, and I think it was 21 acres, uh, is being sold. Um, I mean, you'd have to be willing to live in the home. The dog kennels are not part of that. Okay. So it's it's the home, which there were pictures online, and it's actually really pretty inside. There are all these hard-upon walls, but, you know, I don't know. It would be hard to... Nothing happened in the, in home, the home that we Six know Six months of. ago, they... A cleanup, was- maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe a cleanup or yeah, showers, because that, that went over and over again, and the, the trial was that they didn't check the drains. Yeah. So you can get in there, maybe you'll find something. Um, six months ago, the estate sold for $3.9 million. That's like 1,700-plus acres where they were, Maggie and Paul were found shot dead in 2021. And the Moselle Estate House, four bedrooms, four and a half baths. And let's take a, a look and listen to the ad that's been placed by the real estate company. I'm Todd Crosby with the Crosby Land Company. Today, we are at the iconic Moselle Farm in Collin County, South Carolina. Come with me as we take a look around. Nestled at the heart of Northwest Colleton County, the Moselle Estate graces a sprawling 21 acres of exclusive low country living. Passing through the stately brick columns at the property's entrance, you'll be captivated by an enchanting oak-lined driveway, unveiling a quintessential Southern masterpiece, the Moselle Estate House. This distinguished four bedroom, four and a half bathroom residence, boasting over 5,200 square feet, exudes an exquisite blend of character, craftsmanship, and Southern elegance. Step inside and a grand foyer welcomes you into a generously sized family room adorned with custom built-ins, crown molding, and mahogany French doors leading to a breezy back porch area. The chef's kitchen boasts top-of-the-line stainless steel appliances, granite countertops, a wet bar with wine cooler, and a cozy breakfast nook. 
The well-thought-out floor plan encompasses two ground-level bedrooms, including a master suite and two spacious bedrooms on the second level, providing an ideal balance of privacy and communal spaces with two sizable recreation rooms on the first and second floors. The Moselle Estate extends its beauty to the sprawling 21 acres of pristine land it calls home. Here, the allure of the low country unfolds with majestic oaks, vibrant wildlife, and a picturesque backdrop that beckons you to savor every moment of this truly exceptional property. This is your opportunity to embrace the epitome of Southern living and create a lifetime of cherished memories. Uh, we will link this to our Facebook page because I think you actually need to see this video to kind of get the whole picture, but it was kind of creepy seeing yeah. you will enter through the majestic brick columns. And we've seen that on so many crime scene videos and that sort of thing that it's actually kind of eerie. That's the one shot I really think that brought back images, right? Yeah. That one shot there, because you know, that's, all about the timing of where he came out and when Alec came in and came out and, and where he may have or may not have seen them, if that's what his alibi was. That's the one shot right there. Yes, I agree. It, it makes it different. Now, this is only 21 acres, and I think what the property is, six was it? 1,700 plus. 1,700 plus acres, and the majority of the property is uh, was sold to a neighboring farm, I think the Godly Farm, and maybe it might be Ayers Farm as well. But it made me think about Way back when, maybe a year ago, we had a source that told us about the shootout that mm -hmm. happened at the Godly Farm, where somebody showed up and plowed through a fence, right? Plowed through a fence. It was really weird. And then there was then there was a shootout with the owners and whoever the person was. And nobody was injured, but it just it just was weird. Especially the location and the timing and everything. Yes, right next to the Moselle property. Yes, and we bring in. Uh, one of the hosts of the Wicked South podcast that we do as well, and a guy who was there every step of the way during the Murdoch trial, as we were there off and on, Seton and I, Seton there was there often. We've all covered this thing from Jump Street, and the Murdoch murders the movie, the first non-documentary dramatic reenactment, if you will, of of the Murdoch mess. It premiered on Lifetime this past weekend uh, at 8 p.m. And, okay, so let me do it this way. Let me let me give uh, Seton, give me a, uh, we'll break it all down in a minute, but if you had to give it uh, out of five stars. Okay, I, I, I'm not good with stars, but I will say that. Okay, how about an A, B, C, D, E? I, no, I don't know. I mean, I'm still processing. I. Okay. Like it in the vein that I grew up with my grandmother watching Lifetime movies. That's what we did on Sunday night. We loved to watch a Lifetime movie. And so I initially didn't want to watch it because I knew that I would pick apart facts and inaccuracies. But then I did watch it uh, yesterday and today. And I tried to just go into it as a pure entertainment. If you go into it with pure entertainment, I'd probably give it a four stars. And if you like Lifetime, which... I do. It like, brought me words, back you, to wait, my. It brought me back to my teen years of watching this with my grandmother. Yeah. So I did, in that respect, like it. But if you're going to uh, talk about accuracies and you know pick apart little things, like there was a mountain in the background, that, you know, a lot of people on social media are talking about. You know, the scenes didn't appear as if they were from the Low Country. 
that part you might want to give low scores to. Okay, let's go to Michael DeWitt now. Just without breaking down, we do it in a minute, your general overview of the two-part movie. Good uh, Good morning, everyone. It's kind of kind of weird uh, being on, uh, it's, you know, being on Impact of Influence. Uh, <laughs> I'm on a different podcast with the same people. I don't know. I don't know how to feel here. Um, <laughs> Worlds colliding. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's, this is a crossover episode. My wife watches a lot of... Um, you know, law and order crossovers. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Chicago yeah. fire, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really don't know what to think of, of, about all this. Um, I didn't really get a chance to watch the show as far as for pure entertainment, because I had to write through the entire, um, uh, two night episode when, um, and all this, all of this live blogging and this whole Murdoch story has been a, a learning experience for me. I've had to do things I've never done before, but when the first Netflix episode came out, the um, USA Today Network asked me to live blog that uh, very first documentary that ever came out. And I'm like, I don't even know what a live blog is. I don't know how to do this. And, <laughs> um, so they, they taught me and I, and I, I guess I did okay. And uh, so now Lifetime was the first dramatic reenactment. And they asked me to live blog uh, both nights. And I sat, you know, uh, we couldn't get Lifetime in the living room. We had to get it in the bedroom on the Roku TV. So I'm laying in bed with like a, um, <laughs> a uh, what do you call it? Like a cutting board on my lap to hold the computer. And I'm um, just typing away. But it got a lot of different reactions on social media. And I think that... I think the best way to explain it is there's two types of people watching this show. There are the people here in South Carolina and in our area who know the people, know the area, and have been following this trial and this case like vividly. People are on social media just analyzing this thing and doing their own investigative work. And then you have people out in California or Rhode Island who are like, wow, this is a great movie. Let's sit and watch it. And this is a crazy case they got going on in South Carolina. I think that they were kind of setting themselves up for as far as South Carolina and Southeast viewers. No movie is going to satisfy these people because we know all the true facts. We know the crimes. Yeah. And um, but as far as the rest of the country, I, I think it was a, a success. and. Um, and people tuned in and they watched it. One thing I know that you probably can speak to is when I watched the Gloria Satterfield scene and she fell down the stairs, they didn't have the right number of stairs, but I viewed this in a different context because I'm thinking people know these people. And when I've watched these type of movies in the past, I really just watched it for entertainment value. And I think local people watch it and say, oh my gosh, here is this person I know and they're reenacting this and you see the blood pouring out of her head. And the same thing with the Mallory Beach scene. You know, I think that people who are local, it's like, I wouldn't recommend anybody's family involved in this to watch this. I'm thinking and hoping that most people, most close family members probably didn't watch it. Um, the, uh, I mean, if they did, they they would have to know to, to brace yourselves. But um, I wrote that in the in the live blog Saturday and Sunday night, and I um, got some comments from locals that said, you know, especially the part where there's a um, the a body washed up in the in the marsh, and of course we we know that to, um, to be 
a depiction of Mallory Beach. And um, so that was particularly hard for anybody that knew the family or knew the young lady. So I guess, you know, if you're a, a local or a family member, you kind of, you know, watch at your own risk. But it would it would be hard for anybody, even, you know, members of the Murdoch family to watch this thing. So we see a lot of criticism about it being realistic. And what you mentioned earlier, the number of steps, you know, I, I, my brain doesn't go to that much detail. I didn't even pick up on that till I heard people comment on it. But people, you know. They tend uh, to forget that this was not a documentary. This was a, a, a creative, dramatic reenactment. And one thing I do want to mention, I tried to point this out in the stories I did and on Twitter and Facebook, was the producers uh, did make an effort to get uh, the basic facts correct. And they hired uh, an author and a writer who, who probably knows more about the, uh, the case than even I do. Uh, Jason Ryan, the author mm -hmm. of, of Jackpot, is also writing a book about the Murdoch family history. And while he may not know Hampton County as well as I do, I think he knows this case just as good as anybody. And he was at the trial most days. I mean, he, he was there a lot. We've had him on talking about Jackpot. You can go back and find that episode on Impact. The thing is about when they're doing a, a, a movie and things, they've got to move along. This case, was there were so many moving parts in this case that you have to move along the narrative quickly. So everything happened. The timeline seemed really rushed, right? And, and really weird and how it all occurred. It was all like back to back to back because they had, to, as opposed to multiple years between uh, Gloria Satterfield, Mallory Beach, and all these things. Well, let's just go to the first episode and then we'll kind of, I think we should go like on a timeline a little bit. The Murdochs did a lot of charity work. They talked about the train cases. They got this in like in the first five minutes, spoiling Paul. But they were also really tough on Paul, you know, in, in some of the scenes, they were they were fussing at Paul for drinking, which I don't know that that's entirely accurate, because if you look at the social media posts of them, here's Paul underage drinking a lot. So but right. they did have that narrative. And I, I don't know if that's true or not, that they were fussing at Paul for his his actions. And one of the things that they, the narrative they kept pushing, and I have not heard this one, they, they, they pushed a lot, was that Alex's father was hard on him. Do you know anything about that, uh, Michael? Have you heard that his dad was exceptionally hard on him as opposed to the other brothers? At least that's what they painted in the movie, right? I don't think they got, and, and keep in mind, this is not a documentary. This right. is a, um, you know, a reenactment. I don't think they got Randolph the third quite right. He, um, you know, he, this stern father, he may have had to be hard on his his kids from time to time. And there may have been some things that that Paul and Alex did that he might have, you know, had some some harsh words. But all my research and, and knowledge, he was a loving father. He he loved family. You know, he, he loved family. He would do anything for family. And the uh, so I don't think this image of a of a stern, scornful uh, father was accurate at all. No. I heard the same, um, but do we know if he played solitaire on his computer while at work? <laughs> that was one of the things that they had him doing. Yeah, killing time. <laughs> I don't know anything about solitaire. <laughs> they, they have a scene in there. I know that Paul had been pulled over. We've heard that before. But they have a scene where Paul's actually sitting in jail, and Alec goes to get him out. Because this is before Mallory stuff in the movie. Yeah. And again, this is, I obviously I get it, they're taking license. But I had not heard of Paul 
being arrested and taken to jail. Have either of you? I had heard he received a ticket for underage drinking, but not the jail thing. So I think that probably was creative license. Okay. I wanted to, I just wanted to. It, it, it was. Okay. Paul was, um, he was booked when he showed up for court in Beaufort County. He was arraigned, formally arrested, all that right there at the same time. Um, the law enforcement complex center is in another building besides the courtroom. Um, he never even went into that that jail building. He was he was booked. Um, it's been reported he was his booking photograph was taken in the in the hallway of the courthouse. As, as uh, several reports have stated. Wait a minute, Michael. You're talking about the Mallory Beach. I'm talking about the scene where he gets pulled over by the cops. He's in jail. Alec comes in and gets him out. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There's no evidence in in the boat crash case or in the uh, in uh, any any drinking and driving. Um, case where he was ever arrested. To my knowledge, the first Murdoch ever to be placed behind bars was Alex. Mm. I do want to go to the boat crash. You know, they do this hospital scene, which reading all of the uh, reports from the different people who were working seemed to be somewhat accurate, except for the fact that they had Maggie at the hospital, which Maggie was not at the hospital um, the night of the boating accident, which made me think, Back to why was she not at the hospital? Maybe she was out of town. Maybe there's some legit reason for it. But I did. It's always kind of stuck in my mind of why Maggie was not at the hospital after this boating accident. And yeah, that's a good question. Very good question. And we had heard that uh, Paul was extremely obnoxious at the hospital. They kind of toned that down a little bit. I I thought they did a pretty good job. We was restrained. They did have the restraints on him. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, uh, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact 50 and use code impact 50 five oh to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that codes impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50 percent off your first box and 20 percent off your next box while your subscription is active impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50 percent off your first box and 20 percent off your next box while your subscription is active. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Uh, Where do you want to go next that stands out to you? Okay, let's talk about this whole um, affair. Oh, yes. And, you know, there's a scene where Alec is aggressive. He hits and he chokes this person and it, it it's uncomfortable to watch and he's taking Viagra. I don't know. It's that's <laughs> that seemed to be for maybe entertainment value. Entertainment yeah. value. Well the only thing I the only thing and I Michael and uh, seen correct me, 
the only word we've ever gotten about, well, okay, there's been a couple, but about Alec potentially cheating was when Will Folks from Fitz News had on a former escort who claims to have had a night with Alec, who claims that I believe he claims he her choked hair. her or pulled yeah, her hair or yes. something. Now, she, there must have been some problem with her credibility because I would imagine prosecution would have wanted her on the stand if that were have been able to have been confirmed or corroborated, right? Yeah, I don't know. We haven't heard anything else since the Fitz News article, so I don't know if they're still looking into this or not. I'm so not sure. as, do you know, Michael, if any other affair was reported uh, officially about Alec? Let's take that question in two parts. The sex worker scene that was depicted in the movie, you know, like once again, this is a dramatic reenactment, and, um, you know, sex, drugs, violence, all of these things appeal to, to audiences, and so I guess that's why that scene was was placed in there. But the only news outlet that I've seen that has reported on the the, the young lady's allegations has been Fitz News. And they've been uh, very reliable about a, a most uh, a lot of, you know, most things that I've seen. But there are two sides to the story. I've seen uh, we've all seen the, the, the allegations from the young lady that he was, you know, abusive or, or violent. And then I've seen critics on, on social media saying, that, you know, this this there's no credibility here. This is a woman looking for 15 minutes of fame. So I haven't seen any. There's been no charges filed. There have been no formal investigation that I'm aware of in this case. I think this was just kind of a flash in the pan uh, kind of thing for a minute. And it doesn't really affect the overall major cases. I think it just kind of goes toward if it's true, it just kind of goes toward Alex's character. The only other uh, mention of, of infidelity was during the trial. If you remember, there was a mention that um, that Maggie was worried uh, that Alex had been uh, talking to a, a former girlfriend. I don't remember the details. Yeah, it was there was it was actually uh, Maggie's sister, Maggie's sister who yeah. who brought that. And it was Marion Proctor. Yes, it was in camera hearing, so the jury did not hear about this, but they did do this in camera hearing where. Uh, Marion testifies that Maggie was upset because I guess Alec had been uh, having some communications with a former girlfriend on Facebook. My thinking goes right to if something had happened, I would imagine prosecution would have wanted to have that, right? They would have done everything in their power to get that into record because that's a huge possible motive that they don't need motive granted but I would think that they would move heaven and earth if that were true to make it happen, right? No, and we did hear lots of testimony that they were a loving family. So we we, we heard that from yeah. lots of different people too. I do want to talk about the fact that Dick Carpootlin was played by a female lawyer. And uh, I think Jeannie Seconder, the CFO of uh, PMPD, was played by a male. And... Eric Bland, most of the people were named by name. Eric Bland was had a different name, and I saw on Twitter he was not happy because the guy did not was kind of a scrawny guy, didn't have big guns. And um, Eric said he never, <laughs> yeah, he did say that. And well, Eric's proud of his working out, and there's no, and he should be. He's a beast, but he also said that he's never come face to face with Alec, or it would have been a different kind of meeting. Yeah, and and um, I probably wouldn't be happy if I was Jim Griffin. He he was played by uh, an older. 
I mean, an older person, I think, than he is. What so. What about the uh, accents, uh, Mr. Low oh, Country? Oh, yeah, we need uh, to talk about that. Michael DeWitt, what do you think about the accents? Uh, you know, I think that at times they were close. And then, uh, you know, it's hard to, to, to keep a, a fake tone or a fake accent for a, a, a steady period of time. So I think at times the accent kind of came and went. <laughs> My husband um, is always bothered by that. I just tend to tune it out. I don't pay attention. But, I mean, that's a, that's a common theme back from, what, Forrest Gump, that people are not happy with the way Southern accents sound. Well, they went with, on some of the people, they went with the old Charleston, very, very uh, proper, <laughs> didn't they, right? A couple of people in the movie were talking like they'd been from, uh, I had the vapors. Charleston. Yeah, Charleston. <laughs> they had the, like a couple of the attorneys they gave that kind of accent to. And then when they went to... The Murdochs, and I also, I, I, maybe it was just me, but it seemed to me every time they would say the last name, it was very emphasized, as if we know it's not Murdoch. So it'd be like, Murdoch! And they'd be talking on and be like, ah, blah, 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 Buster, Murdoch! <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's we get it. Com- you know it's Murdoch. But I will say the, the female who played uh, Dick Harpootland's character, she didn't even do a Southern accent at all. Now, now we're moving through the episode. Anything else that uh, you saw of, of interest? They nailed Shelly Smith's appearance. Like I thought her, the testimony that she did and the, in this, they accurately portrayed what she said on the stand in her interaction with, with Alec. And then also when they had her on the stand, she had on this really cool red shirt with these uh, pearls, like multiple layers of pearls, and they had that right too. I thought overall the, um, the performance by Bill Pullman as Alec Murdoch was okay. I thought so too. I mean, a I lot of people okay. were criticizing it. I saw on social media, but I really thought he, I thought he was good. I thought he was okay. Yeah, I think he did a great job to yeah, so to too. be up against the challenge. Um, I think you know, I think he he played that was a win for them. He played that yeah, character I well. I can't think of anybody that could have done it any better. It's hard to play um, a living person who we've all seen. You know, right? You know that it's uh, so. Uh, what do you think about the trial stuff? I thought the trial stuff was well done. Michael? Before we move on, I want, you know, we're talking about the actors and the characters. I want to touch on this. Sure. Um, I don't think they quite portrayed Maggie uh, realistically either. True. Um, having known her and her personality, um, I don't think they quite got Maggie right, obviously, and the dynamic of how they um, allowed Paul to do this and that. So that, but they weren't trying to be accurate. They were trying to paint her as this wholesome victim, uh, which certainly she is a victim, but they didn't quite nail her personality. Right. Well, let me stop you there for him. Do you mean that? Cause they portrayed her kind of as, as I don't know if mousy is the right in, word in the dark. They portrayed yeah. her as in the dark and really very, um, sweet. And I know that some of the scenes portrayed them and Michael might be able to speak to this, as really being ostracized by the community after the boating accident. Well, they did mention that in the trial a lot. The, the, one of the reasons that Maggie spent so much time at Edisto, according to the testimonies, she didn't like hanging around Hampton too much because she was getting looks and people were talking about her, so she went to Edisto a lot. Well, and in the Lifetime movie, they show you know people being mean to them. They actually show Paul being beat up um, on the streets. Like in broad daylight. In broad yeah. daylight, yeah. We know that there had been plenty of rumors about him being threatened and things like that, but it was, he was just walking out of the in this th- movie and he could punch. In the I face. don't think that actually happened. Yeah. Um, other characters that you had thoughts on in the Lifetime movie, Michael? 
basically as a whole, the second half of the show was better. The courtroom scenes were better than some of the other scenes. But as far as characters, I think the only win, the only really memorable actor or character was Bill Pullman as Alex. Everybody else was just kind of very forgettable. For people who know, for the people who have sat and watched this trial and followed it on court TV and and they live and breathe this Murdoch crime saga, it would take a powerful portrayal of any of these uh, characters to get it right. Anybody short of Morgan Freeman, for example, could not play Judge Clifton Newman. Um, you know, you need uh, really strong people to stand out. And I think the uh, the only one who did was Bill Pullman. Yeah. Well, and one thing we do need to keep in mind is they probably had to change some of these facts because if you made everything really realistic, then that might put them in a greater legal liability. I'm not sure. They have to speed everything along. That's why they have to have made up dialogues. But they have to change some of the names and they have to do some of that stuff just probably for legality purposes. Yeah. Uh, Any other overall thoughts before we let you go, Michael? No, I think. no movie is no two hour, even a four hour movie is going to be able to really capture this crime saga. Um, I highly doubt any movie is going to make the, the avid uh, Murdoch true crime fans happy. Um, but what I would like to see is maybe a, a series like a, you know, 12, 14 seasons or something yeah. where they go back into the history and talk about the family and, and uh, you know, the train crash, Buster Murdoch, the moonshine conspiracies, I would watch that. I would watch the devil out of that. But, um, you know, two hour, four hour reenactments. I don't I don't know. Uh, you know, if you like cheesy movies, I think it was a win. <laughs> and uh, if any uh, movie companies or streaming services are thinking about doing one, uh, consultant Michael DeWitt sounds good. Consultant C. Tucker, consultant uh, Matt Harris. That would sound good on your on your oh, yeah. uh, thing. And also. The, the mistake about the trial was the courtroom scenes. I didn't see anybody resembling Michael or Seton, and I didn't see Joe McCall's silver hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you saw a guy that was bored asleep on the back road, and that was probably me. <laughs> uh, Michael DeWitt, the writer uh, who has the the book, The Fall of the House of Murdoch, coming out at the end of November, and the guy who does the Wicked South podcast with us. Uh, thank you for joining us on this pod, Michael. My pleasure. Later, man. All right, Seton, let's do some more of the updates that have happened with the Murdoch stuff. First thing I want to mention is last episode, we reported that Corey Fleming was in federal prison in Atlanta, but now he has been moved to the Jessup facility. And I believed that he was initially in Atlanta just for an evaluation period before he was moved to Jessup. And uh, other update? So we have a subpoena that was sent by an attorney representing Mallory Beach's family uh, to Buster seeking information about fees for the participation in the Fox documentary, The Fall of the House of Murdoch. And there were more subpoenas sent to the Murdochs uh, by the co-receivers John T. Lay and Peter McCoy. And they're questioning if Alec Murdoch benefited by his participation in the Fox documentary, which, of course, would be prohibited by law. And you were in it. Did you uh, benefit? Did you get any money? I did not get any money, no. And I believe this is all in relation to Murdoch seeking the feds to take control of all of his assets. And my question is, is this a way 
for uh, people to get legal fees, or is there some sort of attention seeking? You know, there's been a lot of press conferences. What I've been told is that typically the states or the Fed will defer to whichever has a procedure in place. And in this case, the state has a procedure in place with the co-receivers. And Alec Murdoch's team has mentioned that these receivers are really expensive. However, the receivers have said that they're not going to take any more fees, and the defense is questioning this. Uh, the government opposes uh, the request for the defendant to, se- to seize his assets. And in this, the government says that the defendant has waived his right to challenge or contest the receivership because he just hasn't done it to this point, and that the defendant does not get to decide which assets the government seizes or when. Uh, makes sense. <laughs> they, you, they're seized, they're seized. And I think there's also the question of unknown assets that people will be digging thoroughly through to try to find where all this money went to. In the trial, the prosecution kept kind of vaguely saying bad land deals. Remember that? That came up yeah, a few times. But that, that, that seems so vague to me that you would think they'd want to track down every last penny, and maybe they have, but we just don't know about it. All right, let's go to comments and post. We had a couple of great comments on our impact of influence. Not everything is negative. Uh, Beth says, great podcast, not biased at all. I didn't really like Lori's episode, but it was good to hear. But it's good to hear all sides. Um, also, EJ says, please keep doing what you're doing. Your insight, investigation, guests, including Lori, and all the time you've taken to get this information to us in your podcast is stellar. Yes, I've been listening since the beginning, and I might have been a little bit biased towards you both, but there have been a few times when I didn't totally agree. That's what keeps things interesting and honest and just plain interesting. Love you guys. Very nice. This is from Jen. This podcast can sometimes be a bit clunky because news info is constantly dropping. Yeah, clunky's fair. Yeah. However, the host absolutely listen to all sides, which some of us may not want to hear, but it's necessary for a full story. Good job, Seton and Matt. And I actually really love this comment on X. Uh, Rosie says, when it comes to the podcast covering the Murdoch saga, it's usually pretty obvious what the opinions of the hosts are. I can honestly say that I don't know which side Matt or Seton land on when it comes to their personal views on the verdict. And talks about some more things. But yeah, nice. I don't think we've really expressed our personal views. And I think that's what our uh, my personal goal is. Right. I, you know, we, we, and we've, you've said this before. Sometimes we think one thing and then we get some more information and we aren't afraid to change. That's for sure. Yep, that's oh, true. I promised the Canada person, Cleo in, in, in Canada. Uh, the important part of this one is, well, I'll do this. I just want to say I randomly stumbled across your show in your infancy and love how much you have grown. Recently, I've been disappointed with the angle you guys have been leaning and frustrated with that fact. You can't admit that you're leaning pro Alec. The episode you had with the guest lawyer participating with her insulting others, blah, 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 blah. Here's the important part. I know you won't read this or mention it. Ha! No, we will. We're not scared. We are not scared. But I don't feel like we, I I don't know. I guess as a person in general, sometimes you lean one way or another. But I don't feel I personally try to. I try to be as neutral as possible and just present the information that we have. I wrote back to uh, Cleo. Cleo kind of came around and still might be our friend. Well, (laughs) I hope you will listen and I hope you get to hear that we did read your comment. Yeah, we we love a good Canadian. Uh, We've got an announcement too. 
Yeah. We well, are. it was Canadian Thanksgiving last weekend. Our neighbors had it. Yes. So happy wow. Thanksgiving, Cleo. Wow. That. Well, Cleo will love you now. Uh, we have signed a deal. We are with Evergreen Podcast now. Evergreen Podcast do a lot of great podcasts, including some true crime ones. Uh, they've uh, taken over our podcast and our feed, and uh, we appreciate Evergreen being part of the family, and we are proud to be part of the Evergreen family. You can find us on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. I'd uh, love to hear from you, good, better, and different. Please rate the show, the episode, share it. That's cool. And hit that follow button. That'd be great, too. And as always, we're grateful, and we'll talk to you soon, friend. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.